0: I think that normalization is what I fear most. We've normalized law-breaking in the White House of a stunning level, corruption of the sort this country has never seen
1: before. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation, I'm David Goodman. Is fascism on the rise under President Donald Trump? Jason Stanley, a professor of philosophy at Yale University, has been looking at how Trump employs classic fascist techniques to maintain power. Stanley is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Washington Post, and author of the best selling 2018 book, How Fascism Works The Politics of Us and Them. Professor Jason Stanley, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. It's great to be on. I'd like to begin with a Fascism 101. Explain what is fascism. Fascism is a cult of the leader
0: who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation brought on by immigrants, minorities, and leftists. Uh, He poses, uh, he raises panic and fear about the destruction of the nation and presents himself as the only solution.
1: So let's take the phrase, make America great again. It seems to refer to an idyllic past that we should return to. Explain how that fits into a a kind of fascist pattern.
0: So in my book, How Fascism Works, there's 10 tactics of fascist politics. The very first is called the mythic past. Um, What you do uh, in fascist politics, and Hitler did this with expertise, uh, but it's it's a common feature. You see it with Modi in uh, the Hindutva, Hindu nationalism. Uh, you say, in the past, we were great. We were an empire. We ruled over others. Uh, we had pride. Men had pride just for being men. Uh, our men were great soldiers. Uh, so you hearken back to military conquests and domination and cultural domination. And then you say, All that is lost. The minorities are supplanting us. Our religion is being supplanted. Our race is being supplanted. Men are being supplanted. Uh, And the anguish and fear you fear about the economy, about the lack of jobs, about the destruction of the climate, really, that's anguish and fear about this loss of a mythic past. It's nostalgia for a past that
1: never was. Talk about your own family history with fascism in Nazi Germany. So my father and mother both uh,
0: are Holocaust survivors. They weren't in death camps, thank God. My father was almost seven when he escaped Berlin in August 1939, so at the very last moment. Um, My grandmother, his mother, uh, was involved in underground work uh, rescuing people out of Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Uh, so she stayed until the very last moment. My father experienced the horrors of Kristallnacht, grew up in Berlin as an upper class in an upper class Jewish family, uh, and and just you know understood, as I've written in some of my work, the kinds of things that Muslim Americans I think understand with their children. Uh, so he always told me how when he learned to read for the first time, he uh, he he realized when he's starting to learn to read, he realized that, you know, the, the, the newspapers and the politicians were calling him a danger to the country. Uh, the signs on the streets were about him. So I often think about that when I, when, I, when I think about what my fellow Americans of Muslim faith are going through with their children. My mother is Polish Jewish. Unlike my father, she grew up in incredible poverty in Eastern Poland all seven of her aunts and uncles were killed by Hitler, all hundred plus of her, uh, of her cousins. Uh, she and her sister were the only survivors. Uh, she was born in 1940 uh, and grew up in a Siberian labor camp and uh, uh, almost starved to death, repatriated back to Poland at five. And then when my grandfather was beaten to almost to death by anti-Semites on the streets of Warsaw, when she was eight, they got a visa to the United States. So both of them came to the United States on boats past, sailing on boats past the Statue of Liberty in classic style as refugees
1: from war. It's always seemed to me, and and I also have family history of survivors of the Holocaust and of Russian pogroms, uh, so we have that in common. It seems to me that German Jews from the Nazi era can be divided into two categories. Those who saw what was coming and fled and those who rationalized away what Hitler was doing and stayed and many of them ended up in concentration camps. Here in Vermont, we border on Canada and I often hear people half jokingly talk about fleeing North if Trump is reelected. Are we at a moment in the US where people should be thinking about leaving?
0: I get asked this question a lot and I have to face it a lot. My my mother uh, was always very clear that uh, that the moment that you danger is there is too late, that you recognize that you're in danger, it's too late. Uh, so you have to plan in advance. That said, I don't think that the potential, if things get much worse, I don't think that, uh, that um, it will be in the first instance threatening to, uh, to people who aren't immigrants, leftist activists uh, i think you know most people live in authoritarian societies the united states for a long time uh was uh for its black citizens far from a democracy uh and still is uh you know it's it's uh, we as the voting problems show uh which are long standing uh we are a partial democracy and if that erodes further um you know, uh, it, it will be deeply concerning, but the fact is, uh, this kind of authoritarian far right, uh, social and political movement that we're seeing in the United States is far from unique to the United States. Uh, the three of the four, uh, world's largest democracies, Brazil, uh, India, and the United States are run by far right ethno-nationalist, uh, leaders, uh, heads of, uh, Ethno- ethno-nationalist social and political movements. So, um, so it's not clear where to go. The United States has a long history of fighting this. Uh, I think that both parties have trafficked in the kind of ethno-nationalist uh, politics we're seeing from the Trump administration. Clinton certainly did uh, in the 1990s. So, uh, so we have a chance here to uh, to I think say. Look at how bad things can get. Uh, let's, this is America. This has happened before. Uh, we've all been complicit in it. Uh, maybe we can uh, solve it so, uh, so things don't get this bad again.
1: As a scholar of fascism, what concerns you the most right now? You made a, a, a video for the New York Times a couple of years ago, and one of your key messages was, you should be afraid.
0: Yes, I think because normalization happens and we've already seen extreme normalization. I see Trump as a symptom and not a cause. He is a cause. I see him as both a symptom and a cause. But post 9-11, we had a war on terror and a security apparatus that was designed to uh, essentially hunt out and police uh, our fellow fellow citizens of Muslim faith. Uh, Black Americans have long been uh, the subject of massive over-policing uh, and incarceration. Uh, poor Americans, unions, lay the labor force has been targeted by uh, massive corporate power. Um, and we're seeing all of that accelerate, and of course with climate change. So, uh, so I think that, um, that normalization is, the, is the, what I fear most. The reason I said we should be afraid is because there's a human tendency to normalize this is what my parents always told me. Uh, you immediately normalize anything extreme. We've, uh, we we see this, for instance, with the Muslim ban, which at first was extreme, people rushed to the airports, then the Supreme Court upheld it, and nobody blinked. Everyone was just like, okay, uh, we have now a ban on all these countries, uh, and they're adding African countries for no apparent reason whatsoever, uh, and that's just fine. Uh, w- Americans... Uh, ICE and uh, and Homeland Security were targeting uh, were targeting immigrants with criminal records. Uh, then they expanded to all all essentially all undocumented immigrants. Uh, SCOTUS has become an, essentially a legislative body branch of the Republican Party, um, and people don't blink; they just quickly normalize. So what I was trying to say is, like, look, there are secret agents of the government hunting your fellow American residents at their workplaces, people who have been here for many, many years and contributing taxes, and you've normalized that. You've normalized detention centers where we don't know what's going on. We've already normalized mass incarceration. We've normalized law breaking in the White House of a stunning level, corruption of the sort this country has never seen before. Uh, Trump has... You know the RNC was one massive illegal Hatch Act violation, using the White House for election purposes. Uh, th- this administration is uh, is directing money to the president's businesses at at rates that the New York Times has shown in, in exchange for government uh, for for government favors. All of that gets quickly normalized, and uh, and so what I was trying to do is is to to raise people's awareness of. Another example is is the media environment, the lying. Trump's lying was at first shocking. Uh, the massive hypocrisy of the Republican Party, which has now been revealed uh, with this SCOTUS nominee, you know, at the last minute, for example, uh, in contrast to Merrick Garland. The massive, uh, one of myriad examples. So, but people just normalize. No one is, uh, no one, uh, right now, the idea that we're a
1: law and order state Uh, is uh, a dim memory. Of all these outrages, does one right now hold your attention more than all the others as the most concerning in terms of threats to democracy? Right now, the rigging of the election uh, that we're seeing in front of us.
0: The Supreme Court nominee yesterday said that she would not comment on peaceful transfer of power. Uh, the Republican Party, and this is why I say that Trump is a uh, as much a symptom as he is a cause, or perhaps more a symptom than a cause, the Republican Party seeks to run this country as a minority party. Uh, Hannah Arendt uh, warns us of the danger of parties that place loyalty to party over parties by which she means loyalty to a political party over loyalty to a multi party democracy and that 's what we 've seen we 've seen an absolute Villa, uh, absolute a Republican Party that knows that it cannot win a majority of votes and is trying to lock down the levers of state so they will control the country in perpetuity. And when that happens, of course, there will be one person who will transform the party into a cult of the leader. So what I'm I have no reason to think that the Republicans will uh, will respect the election results. So that in the immediate term. But secondarily, the seizure of the courts. You look to see who Democrats put in in court positions, and they're older. They're they're, they're not uh, they're less partisan. Uh, uh, people like Breyer and Breyer and uh, Kagan. These are these are not. I mean, imagine if the if a Democratic president uh, appointed a uh, nominated a brilliant, and I assume this. Uh, 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 the, the new nominee is very brilliant, she seems to be, uh, but suppose a Democratic president nominated a brilliant socialist with a long history of activism and Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, to, uh, to the, the, the courts who, who deeply believed in keeping religion out of the public sphere. The American people would, I'm not the American people, I mean the whole system would flip out. Communists are coming. But that is exactly the kind of extremist uh, nominee that we have facing us today. So the takeover of the courts by very young, very far right judicial activists, uh, which will hinder democracy uh, from here on out is what deeply is is something that in the
1: long run is of deep concern. Let's talk a little bit about the COVID pandemic. Um, The highest death toll in the world right now is in three countries the US, India, and Brazil. All three countries, as you've mentioned, have far right leaders who've dismissed the pandemic at various times as a hoax. Why do right wing leaders oppose science? Well,
0: in this ideology, all that the only authority there is is the authority of the leader. You can very clearly see that with all three of these leaders. So, now, so science epistemic authority, the authority of science will be treated as a challenge to the leader. So you saw these in Trump's, uh, Trump's um, White House press conferences. Uh, the scientists were clearly supposed to genuflect to him. He was the leader. Scientific authority is a, is a threat and a challenge because these leaders, this politics that I call fascist, but I think is fascist politics, is a politics of the cult of the leader. So science is a threat. Scientific authority is a threat. Scientists are a threat. Uh, And these leaders see everything through a friend-enemy lens. You're either with them or against them. And that holds for reality, too. Reality is either with them or against them. Now, that's a terrible way to confront reality because reality doesn't have sides. So these leaders cannot deal with natural disasters. They cannot deal with reality when it is just uncloaked as as not having a side so they seek to fit it into uh an us them mentality and i think we see that in the united states now uh that at first uh uh, kushner when he was dealing with uh with uh the the COVID situation i think it's in the public record that they they thought it was going to be a disease that was going to affect blue states, democratic states, uh, 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 my, uh, cities uh, with democratic mayors and, and minority populations the most. And so not their problem. Uh, it would just affect the other voters. So that seems clearly to have been part of this. Um, these leaders only rule for their supporters because everyone else is an enemy. And then they're also now using it uh, for electoral politics. So... Why is Trump saying COVID is over? He has defeated it. Um, he's adding on to the COVID denialism he's been conducting since the beginning because uh, he has a ma- because COVID denialism helps him on election day. People who don't take COVID seriously will show up for in-person voting. Uh, Trump has a massive lead among people who intend to vote in person. Biden has a much, much larger lead among those who plan to vote by mail. So therefore, Trump's strategy is to double down on COVID denialism, uh, make COVID as bad as possible for Election Day so his supporters show up and Biden's supporters vote by mail, and then to declare victory as soon as possible before the uh, mail-in votes are counted, claim the mail-in votes are fraudulent, as we've seen and then uh, muddy
1: the waters. So you write that conspiracy theories are the calling card of fascist politics. And right now we have the uh, Trump aligned QAnon, which as conspiracy theories go, it is wild and hard to even summarize, but it basically alleges that a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles is running a global child sex trafficking ring and plotting against Donald Trump. Who is battling against the cabal? Why do conspiracy theories uh, take gain such traction under strongman leaders? Well, these leaders use
0: conspiracy theories to uh, undergird their us them friend enemy distinction. So, uh, so it's linked with the lying uh, and the 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 uh, ignoring of the destruction of truth. If you can represent your opponent as a monster, then it's irrelevant whether what they say in a political debate is true or not. They're a monster. If they say something true, it's just they're using truth to further their monstrous agenda. If you lie, it's irrelevant. It doesn't show you're a bad person. It shows that you're fighting a monster and you're using any tactics that are necessary. So you need to destroy truth to destroy democracy. Democracy is based on truth. Uh, without, uh, without people punishing politicians for lying, you don't have democracy. So you destroy truth by saying, truth is irrelevant. We're fighting a cabal of pedophiles. And, uh, and if, they, if those pedophiles tell the truth, it's just because the truth helps them win and protect their pedophile, pedophilia ring. Uh, if I lie, it's because I'm in a battle and I'm fighting pedophiles.
1: So it's all justified. Well, um, you, uh, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, we're speaking with Professor Jason Stanley. He's a professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of How Fascism Works. Um, Your previous book was How Propaganda Works. Talk about the role that propaganda plays in propping up authoritarian leaders, and where do you see propaganda in the U.S. system right now? Uh, So,
0: you see uh propaganda I mean, propaganda is ubiquitous and propaganda is used by by both political parties of course it's a feature of of any political campaign so you have to talk about kinds of propaganda i mean when hillary clinton w- would give mind-numbingly boring policy speeches that was a kind of propaganda she was trying to represent herself as very competent uh so Propaganda is something all political campaigns use. But there's a particular kind of propaganda that we see today that is reminiscent of fascist propaganda. Hitler and Goebbels both suggested you turn the enemy's charges against, them, against the enemy. So what the enemy charges you with, you charge the enemy with. So that's what we see all the time. The most corrupt administration, in certainly in recent use of U.S. history, perhaps ever, charges their opponents with corruption uh, uh how do you know that the republicans are rigging the trump administration is rigging the election because they're charging the democrats with rigging the election so this is something that goebbels and hitler both explicitly endorse when you're doing something cover it up by charging your enemy with it so this reversal is classic fascist politics uh, we're seeing the, we're seeing the propaganda tropes that I talk about in my book being used, classic fascist propaganda tropes represent, so chapter nine of my book is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, in it, I talk about how all fascist po- political campaigns uh, are attacks on cities. They represent, hit, chapter two of Mein Kampf is called My, T- my Study and Struggles in Vienna. And he talks about how Vienna is filled with decadence and foreigners and foreign languages and Jews, Jews, and more Jews, and is dirty and diseased. So we see this politics very clearly now with, a, with Trump repeatedly running against the cities that are supposedly inflamed and, and filled with minorities, uh, black people, of course, and immigrants and, and leftists, leftist radicals. So we see classic tropes of fascist propaganda, uh, not the least of which, of course, is law and
1: order. Uh, advanced by the most lawless administration in U- U.S. history. In the preface to the new edition of How Fascism Works, your book, you write, uh, quote, A moral of this book is that fascism is not a new threat, but rather a permanent temptation. The U.S. has captured the attention of the world not because of its fascist history, but because of the heroism of its residents uh, who have exhibited in, in internal fights against it. Um, it was a, a strangely hopeful note in an otherwise very bleak picture that you paint. What gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope is, uh,
0: well, Vermont's Senator Bernie Sanders, <laughs> uh, the the a uh, movement uh, the movement that he, among others, started, uh, and we see younger members uh, to uh, to fight for workers' rights, to fight against multinational corporations and the billionaire class that, that feeds off inequality uh, to create fear and anxiety and then, trans- and then misdirect that fear and anxiety against racial minorities and immigrants, women, trans, transgender folks, etc. cetera. Uh, so we need to deal with these systematic inequalities. Uh, it, we're not going to be able, we're always going to have demagogues until we can make people feel secure and not afraid of the future. And for the first time in my life, we have a movement to challenge the oligarchical classes that seek to destroy our planet, our democracy,
1: and our labor force. So that gives me hope. Go Vermont. Well, I guess that's a good note to end on. Uh, You're throwing a softball to the Vermont Conversation with that. So, (laughs) Uh, well, Professor Jason Stanley, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on.
1: Jason Stanley is a professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.